Man, wasn't that worship set awesome? Yeah. Who, who is enjoying uh, Turn the Page, Leave the Cage as a series so far? Yeah. I'm hearing it, but that was pretty lame. Louder. Okay, and I know there's a little bit of a, uh, inside of us, a little bit of a, uh, a tension when we say that because in some of the conversations that I'm having about turning the page, that is hard to do in our lives, right? And so people are like, oh, well, I love it and things are being revealed and I feel like I'm growing and I think as I dive into the material and, and as a body, we do this journey together, uh, it's good because I'm growing, but it also hurts because I'm growing, right? And this weekend, this is the third week of Turn the Page, and we're going to be focused on our hurts and our wounds today. That's not always something that gets us excited, right? That can be a little bit painful as we, as we dive in, we plunge into that topic. And um, I want you to know that it takes the surgery of God to begin to bring about the health that he longs for and that we long for in our life. If we're really going to start pulling that page up and moving that page so that our life becomes a story that's a page turner, that God's glory can be totally revealed and displayed in, we, get, we, get, we gotta do the hard work of moving into that with an open and an honest and a vulnerable and a transparent view of ourselves and others. So that's what we're gonna try today. And I'm gonna start by doing that uh, myself. Uh, this last week, God dropped some things in my lap and, uh, and just, I heard very clearly, this is the story I want you to open with. This is a story of the messiness and the wounds that you have in your life. And I want you to expose some of those that seem, in some instances, just so trivial. But I'll tell you what, life will preach to you, right? And, 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 and if you don't listen, life will preach louder. And that happened this week for me. Uh, on Monday night, I had this awesome experience, just really amazing opportunity. It was the second time I've been able to get out in the woods. Hey, Michigan Hunters, are you grateful for the woods that God has given us to show his glory to us? I haven't been out as much as I want. This is the second time out. I climbed into my tree stand. I'm 20 minutes in the tree stand. I fortunately did have an arrow knocked, but that was it. That was all I had done. So my bow's hanging over here. There's an arrow in it. And this delicious piece of steak walked out on legs like 20 minutes into it. And I'm thinking... This is unbelievable. Like, I'm not even ready. I'm legitimately not ready. But our freezer is getting low on meat. And I'm like, yep, this is perfect. And um, it, 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 I'm not joking. This is one of those weird deer that was like, hey, do you want to shoot me? <laughs> so I'm, I'm just waiting. I mean, I'm up there moving around, grabbing my bow. And it's like, hey, you're not a great hunter. Here I am. So I take, I, I take, as a perfect shot, it runs, it falls. I, I texted my kids, uh, my wife sent the kids out and, and you know, I saw where it fell. This is awesome because I get to put them on the blood trail and we get to kind of track together um, and get our groceries together. It's daddy's version of getting groceries. And, uh, and so we're, we're together and it's just this amazing night in general. But as I start to field dress the deer, we're talking through the different organs. This is a biological experiment for our family. And my girls are like, cut open the stomach, what's in there? And I'm like, no, we don't wanna do that. Um, as this is happening, uh, I start to recall some things. Some things start to come into my mind. One of them is that my precious children this past summer used my gambrel, which holds the deer up. See, I, I have a little bit of a problem. Okay, now we're gonna get into some of my wounding. I like a clean kill, a good harvest, a, a careful processing of the deer, woods to table. I love that, and I'm a little bit... Uh, I'm a little bit meticulous. I'm a little bit obsessive about that process, I, I will admit. And, um, and I'm thinking there's not a gambrel. And I start this verse from Proverbs popped into my mind. Proverbs 32, 20 says, blessed is the hunter whose deer is hunted humanely, harvested fairly and processed carefully for it is a sign of a well-ordered life and well-fed kids. 
Surely some of you are like, Proverbs ends at the chapter 31. <laughs> For the record, that is not in the Bible, okay? <laughs> I'm concerned with the number of you who are like, oh, wow, that's a great verse for hunters. I, I, I didn't know that was in there. That is not in the Bible, not at all. And I don't want it tweeted and I don't want it on social media or any other medium that I came up with a new scripture verse, okay? But here's the deal, here's the, here's the reality of this. I sometimes put my rules before God's word in my life, before God's voice in my life. It's really easy for me to do that. And, um, and as we're processing the deer and bringing it up, I'm thinking, okay, they broke the gambrel. My precious children broke the gambrel. And, um, and now we're gonna take, it's gonna take a couple hours to get this deer hung. I used an inferior rope that I found in the shed. Stuff I don't, my careful stewarding, tending, caregiving personality doesn't like. Like I don't like, but we got it up, we got it hung. It was good, fast forward 24 hours. I'm, I'm leaving here, I'm in the office. I get a text from my wife and it, and it says, hey hon, I'm, I'm on my way out to get the kids from school and uh, the deer is on the ground in the mud and the dogs were over there now I'm getting two things from the audience the hunters in the audience are like yeah you are pretty worthless as a human being <laughs> and those of you who don't hunt are like what's the big deal about this deer just laying in the mud right for me and from my wound and my past the hurts that are a wound about my worth and how accomplishing, accomplishing things and doing things the right way, this starts a cascade in my heart, in my soul. It starts a diatribe of negativity. And when I got home, I got on my truck and I walked across my yard to the lean-to where I hang and there's the deer and it's laying on the ground. Sure enough, the dogs are eating at it and I walk up and there's dirt and there's mud and I just start to have these thoughts. How can you claim to be a leader of anything? if you can't hang a deer? How, how, how can you have any hope of being a good father if you can't teach your kids to treat equipment like the gambler right instead of swinging on it in the summertime? How, how can you lead people, other human beings? You couldn't keep a deer hung in the rafters. How? How can you lead a church? How can you be a pastor? How, and and this, this just keeps going, right? I know it escalates quickly. But within seconds, I was thinking, yep, Heather's gonna leave me for sure. <laughs> My kids are gonna grow up to be alcoholics. These are real thoughts. I'll be homeless probably in a year because I can't provide. And I, I did the hard work, I hung the deer back up, dealing with those thoughts and those frustrations and those wounds from my past. I went in the house and through the grace of God, spent time with my kids. I didn't, I didn't even address it in the moment. That evening, I just felt such a prompting from the spirit. You need to go back out and look at that deer. I have some things I want to say to you. And I went out there and I looked at the deer for a while and I listened to God and I I heard this question, this, this is what came to my mind. Does, does this deer, does this instance in your life really mean, does it really mean that you are a bad dad? Or does it mean that you take the time to have grand adventures with your kids? Right? Does, does this situation really mean that you suck as a human being? Or does it mean that you take time to do things with your kids instead of for your kids? Does this scenario in your life define you and are you gonna live in your wound and are you gonna live in your mess or are you going to listen to who I am and what I say about you? and move into the future I have for you because I love you and I care about you and I see you and I'm there and I've got a different identity. I wanna name you. And so as we move forward, I want you to be thinking about the places 
of pain and hurt in your life, the pain of wounds that you have, the scenarios in your life that happened to you that aren't fair and shouldn't have happened, and you are immediately saturated in the cesspool of sorrow that somebody, somewhere, somehow caused you. The arrow that hit deep. And I want to turn to John chapter 9. It's an incredible story. The gospel of John. We get to see Jesus go to work in the hurt, in the wound, in an incredibly powerful way. If you've got your device, pull it out. I don't like cheating with the Sky Bible. If you have no device or, or you've brought, not brought your Bible, then you can cheat on the Sky Bible. But please turn, if it's BibleGateway.com, uh, whatever, and we're going to read through this passage together and let God speak to us this morning. Uh, John chapter 9, first five verses read this way. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. This is Jesus it's talking about saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? That's key, that's key. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now my heading for this part, and write this in your notes or in the margins of your Bible, is the blind identity. This is the lifelong label that this guy has been dealing with. I want you to enter the story. Jesus is actually coming out of an incredibly traumatic moment just moments before he's in the temple, he's dealt with the woman caught in adultery and then he made this statement to those who were kind of shamed by what he had said about the woman caught in adultery. He tells them, I am that I am. He's declaring to them that he is the son of God. These are the Pharisees, the religious leaders. This just happened in the previous chapter, moments before, and he leaves the temple. It says he was able to slip away through the crowd of the mayhem that was created by that statement. If that's me in this scenario, I'll just tell you as a leader, I'm in all kinds of headspace at that point. Jesus is literally between about a quarter of a mile and half a mile from the temple with his disciples, and he has the calm and the wherewithal and the insight to notice a blind guy blind from birth alongside the road and he stops and he takes stock and what I want you to hear in that is that our Lord and our Savior sees you no matter all the chaos and the mayhem around him all the time and he stops and there's this incredible exchange right out of the gates here's the blind identity the disciples declare it they see they see an object they see the subject of a case study. They see a theological question in the blind man. Rabbi, teacher is what rabbi means. Teacher, what happened here? What, what caused this man's blindness? What, what's the why behind this? Theologically, we want to know, did he sin or, or did his parents sin? This comes out of the guilt punishment-based society of the Jewish people. This is not seeing the blind man at all. In fact, it's heaping on him more of the label of the identity of the pain that he has experienced the entirety of his existence. He hears with the acuity of hearing, the sense of hearing that is increased without his vision. His immediate encounter with Jesus and his entourage is, who sinned? Oh, that's refreshing. That's not new. That's what I've heard my entire life. Since the very first dawn of my existence, I have heard over and over and over again, somebody had to mess up for this and it was either you or it was your parents. Somebody had to be responsible for your hurt and your wound and so it was probably you. You probably deserve that. Are you, are you feeling the blind guy? Yeah. 
That bad thing happened and that bad thing doesn't happen unless you did something to deserve that. Have you heard that in your hurts, in your wounds, in your life? I have. There's gotta be a reason, Jesus. And Jesus' statement, as always, just blows me away. Neither. Neither. In fact, guys, I am not interested. I am not interested in talking about the why of his wound. I'm interested in talking about the how of his healing. I'm not interested in heaping more of a, of a sin-saturated identity on a guy who's heard nothing but that he is the result and the offspring of sin, that, that something happened so he is the, the, the very essence of sin. I, I must be, I've gotta be the one that should carry this guilt. It's been 30 years of not being able to do anything. I'm, I'm, I'm trapped in this identity. I can't get out of it, I can't move out of it. I'm constantly fumbling my way around. I, I, can't, I can't have a family. I can't have a home. I, I can't even, I don't have the ability to get myself to the location that I beg without help or without feeling my way or even crawling my way forward. I, I, I sit here and I beg and that's my only possible way of providing for us. I still live with my parents. My very essence is the wound. I, I, I I don't know any other way. It's my identity. Neither sinned. This guy didn't sin, guys. It's not his fault. He is not the one to blame. This happened that the glory of God may be revealed. This happened that the works of God may be displayed in his story. How many of you need to take a different look at your, at your hurts and your wounds and ask the question, what do the works of God look like on display in my hurt and my wound? I wanna I wanna make sure that we don't miss in this moment, in this interaction right here, Jesus encountering the guy and saying, I am more interested in helping. I am more interested in the psychology of assisting. I see a human being. I see a person who needs help and is in need. I wanna make sure we don't miss this. Some of us who've been following Jesus for years, some of us who are disciples of Jesus find it very easy to ask the academic question. We find it very easy to immediately jump to the sin. And I want to make sure as a church, when you go into the community, the highways and the byways of the places that you have influence, that you are seeing that your Lord and Savior is not interested in quibbling about this guy's why. He, he goes right to the heart of how can I help? That's the kind of church I want us to be. When we start turning the page, I want our page turner to be, we're interested in helping. We're interested in assisting. We're interested in scaffolding. We're interested in building up. We're interested in being something that someone else can use to catapult them forward, just like Jesus did here. Moving into verse six, this is, the, this is the encounter. Listen to this. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva and put it on the, the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means scent. So powerful. So the man went and washed and came home seeing right in the margins of your Bible, the encounter. And I want you to think with me. I want you to enter this moment. This is 
crazy. This guy has not been able to see his entire life. This is the first healing of the entirety of the Bible when someone born with a congenital birth defect of blindness is actually healed. This is a prophetic fulfillment from the Old Testament that Jesus is doing right here. There's three prophecies in the Old Testament that Jesus, the Messiah, would be the one who can heal blindness from birth. That's all about to happen right here. And this guy can't see, so his hearing is phenomenal. We see later in the story that his ability to, to speak is actually pretty tuned in, which I think is also a result of the fact that he couldn't see, but he can hear and he's listening. He's just heard that the disciples think of him as a problem. They think of him as a label. They think of him as an identity of sin, but he's heard that Jesus sees him differently. Jesus is about to do something. Imagine, imagine his mind. Oh, he healed blind Bartimaeus and he, and he, and he spoke words of truth over many and he put his hands. I'm, I'm waiting. Is he, is he, what's he going to do? What's he going to do? And there's this, there's this pregnant pause and here's what he hears. Oh boy, that is not at all what I expected. Uh, maybe I should, what's happening out here? And, and Jesus takes his loogie and he mixes it in the dirt. This is bizarre. I'm telling you, there's no other, it's my favorite healing in the entire New Testament, nothing else. He mixes it in the dirt. He takes the mud created by his saliva and the dirt and he packs it in the dude's eyes. And then he says, go and wash. And I'm thinking to myself, the blind guy's gotta be like, oh yeah, you better believe it. Is there something quicker and closer than the pool of Siloam? Because is that what I think it is in the slime on my eyes? See, see, here's the thing. Jesus sees the uniqueness of his hurt and his wound. And he's, we're going to see that in this encounter. He's going to unpack the specificity of what this guy dealt with in his life, of, of the certain kind of, of damage done in the identity. This guy had heard stuck in the mire, in the muck. He's, he's a stuck sinner. And Jesus comes into this and he says, no, 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 no. You're not. You are not a stuck sinner. Go. You are a sent seeker go to the pool of Siloam move start moving forward I give you a new task this is a blind guy he's not healed immediately in fact his eyes are packed full of mud but he's got to do something and Jesus says I want you to go over a quarter mile and possibly less than a half a mile and I want you to get to the pool of scent and I want you to wash in that water. This guy is not easily able to do that. He's gotta find his way forward. You know what he's gotta do? He's gotta work it for it to work. It will not work. It doesn't work unless you work it, but it works if you work it. It works, it works if you work it. Healing works if you work it. Go. Deliverance works if you work it. Jesus' freedom works if you work it. It doesn't work if you don't work it. If you are not willing to take action, then all it is is dead words on a page. God's word works if you apply it, but it won't do anything if you don't take hold of it and take steps forward. We got a blind guy. We got a guy with complete inability to make it over a quarter of a mile to wash his eyes, but he's going. You know what he's got? He's got a faith and an obedience and a desperate hope that some of us need to tap into when we look at our hurts and our wounds to move forward. He's compelled. I'll go to the pool of Siloam. Shoot, I'll go wherever you tell me to wash your spit mud off my eyes. <laughs> faith without works is dead. James tells us this. That succinctly, faith without works is dead. And I want you to hear that because I want you to start experiencing freedom, to start experiencing victory, to start some miracles in your mess. But for you to be able to do that, you gotta go. You gotta work. 
you got to wash. And then here's what happens. I wish I could tell you it just all gets better. But that's usually not what happens when we start following Jesus. John 9, 8 through 12. Here we go. His neighbors, notice it's his neighbors, not his friends. I don't think this guy had many friends. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claim that he was. It's just, this, is, this word's getting out on the street. Something crazy just happened. Some claimed, yeah, that's the same guy. Others said, no, he only looks like him. He's an impersonator because I can't believe there's any way possible he could see. He was blind from birth. But he himself insisted, I am the man. <laughs> have you ever encountered a point in a place in your story where you have to tell friends or family or neighbors? No, I'm, it was me that did that. I'm, I'm the person that used to live like that. I'm the person that used to have massive insecurities. I'm the person that used to be afraid of my own shadow. I'm the person that used to sit and think I wasn't worth anything. No, I'm, I'm gonna start telling my story. I'm, I'm the man. It's not an impersonator. How then were your eyes open, they asked. And he replied, get used to telling your story on repeat. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. And they're like, well, where is that man? When you start telling your story, people will start asking, where is that Jesus? Who, who is that Jesus? When you start giving voice to how your mess is being made new, people are like, I wanna find out who can do that. I'm curious, at the very least I'm curious, maybe confused, but I'm interested. And he said, I don't know. I don't know. Here's, from Romans 8, 28, we, we, we use this verse all the time. I don't think we know what it really means. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. You see, when God is about to do something good in you, it's to display the glory of his magnificence in your life and your good and his glory are symbiotic. They are together, and he wants to do a work, but you have to grasp the calling and the purpose that he's calling you into. This guy is sent. He's sent right into the lion's den. I gotta tell you, he's sent right into some turbulence and some more trauma. He's just been healed. You think the first thing I would wanna do if I couldn't ever see would be to take it all in. It'd be to behold the face of my mom and my dad. It'd be to see people whose voices I'd only known. It'd be to see a place that I'd only been able to feel before. But instead, he gets plunged into a dialogue of about what in the world just happened to you. And I think sometimes in the newness of life that Jesus brings, all the ordinary and old things look new and they look fresh to you and people are curious about that newness that is occurring inside of you. This, this is the recreation story. He's beginning to recreate. This is what Jesus is demonstrating to him. And as he's telling his story, he's beginning to understand and he's beginning to get it. Listen, all through the history of the Bible, all through the accounts of the word, the profane and the common and the human are represented by dirt, by earth. From dust they came and to dust they go. From the beginning in Genesis, I formed and shaped man out of clay. I'm thinking now maybe that was saliva and, and dirt that made that clay. And then I breathe life into Adam, the human of dirt. Water, water all through the scriptures represents the spirit. 
the Spirit of God. The pool of Siloam, this is really cool. They took the water from the pool of Siloam and they used that water in the Feast of the Tabernacle to pour over the offerings representing the cleansing of the Holy Spirit. So we have ourselves a bona fide recreation story right here. We have ourselves a healing where Jesus is literally saying, you didn't, you didn't believe it, but I was the one who formed and shaped and breathed into essence the very DNA and genetic structure of your optic nerve and your eyeball. Check out what I can do to heal it with some mud and the washing of the water. This is dirt and spit. It's faith and obedience. And I, I, want, I want to make sure we don't miss this statement at the end of what he says. He says, I don't know. I don't know. I don't think the blind man understood all the theological ramifications of what was happening. But one thing he knew, he did what Jesus said and he was healed. And that's what he said. And when they said how, and they said how, and they wanted an explanation, everybody's got these questions. His answer to that was, I don't know. And I wanna say some of us as, as leaders in the church and some of us as mature followers of Jesus and disciples of Jesus, we need to be able to get back to a place where we're actually willing to say, I don't know. I don't always know. I'm not sure. Because there's something unpretentious and real about that answer. There's something that I think endears people to our story because all you're saying is I had an experience with Jesus. Let me tell you about that experience. I don't know all the nuances of it all the time. And then he moves, moves on. It's a big chunk of scripture. Buckle up. Okay, we're going from 13 to 34. We gotta do it fast. They brought these neighbors. These neighbors are like, well, he said, I don't know. So it's out of our league. We're gonna take them to the religious leaders. We're gonna take them to the Pharisees. That's like out of the frying pan into the fire, folks. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. Second time. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed and now I see. And some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. It's pretty spectacular to me that the big news to the Pharisees was, oh, he broke one of our Sabbath rules. The big news to the blind guy is, I can see! <laughs> I don't want to miss that in the story. Please, let's not get so bogged down in our man-made rules, in my rules about hanging up a deer and how it should go and the right way to do it that I don't miss the miracle that God is doing with my family. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Your story, your story of what God is doing in your hurts, in your wounds, will divide people. That same workplace where you thought everything was honky-dory and delightful, when you go in that place and you start talking about integrity because of what Jesus is doing in your life, and you start talking about honor, and you start talking about telling the truth, and you start talking about what it means to report real quarterly earnings, not inflated quarterly earnings, it's gonna divide people. When you go back into your friend group and you start talking about, eh, I just, it's, it's not that alcohol's wrong, I'll, I'll have a drink from time to time, but the way that I was using it before, the way you use it is actually as a crutch and it numbs you and it's destroying your life, it's gonna divide people. Then they turned again to the blind man because they're divided and they're not sure what's going on. You can tell that. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. I'm telling you, that was a tactical error on the parts of the religious leaders. This guy doesn't know what he's saying. This guy is uneducated. He couldn't even read because he's blind. And he just says, oh, he's a prophet. He's a prophet. I'm, I'm developing a theology. I don't, I don't know yet. 
And they still did not believe that he had, blind, had been blind and received his sight till they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? This is where our hurts and our wounds are sometimes magnified in our story. We know he is our son, the parents answered. And we know he was born blind. But how he can see now, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him, he is of age. He will speak for himself. You start finding your voice. You start sharing your story. Can you relate to the people closest to you disowning you? to the people closest to you that were the ones you wanted the most to be near, to draw close to, rejecting you, throwing you to the wolves. Look at this, look at this. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had already decided, confirmation bias, that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. We don't want anything to do with him. Today's the most important day of his life. He was healed of congenital blindness, but we don't want anything to do with him. You guys take him. You guys deal with him. We know the consequences we were very artful in the crafting of our statement. Why, sure, sure. He, he, he was our son. He, he is healed, it seems. We do not know how, and we do not know the Jesus who healed him. A second time, I don't know how long between, they summoned the man who had been blind. You know they're really getting into this, digging into this really concerned about the rules. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. Put, put your hand on the Bible and, and as a witness, you know, tell us that this really happened because we, we know what's really going on. We, we know the, the real truth. We know this Jesus is a sinner. And he replied, and he's getting a little bit ticked off, people. Whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Third time. Third time he's told the story. Then they ask him again, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? These questions are now just rhetorical at this point. He answered, I have told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Our blind man is finding his voice. Our blind man is starting to say, you know what? You need this more than I do. You have a spiritual blindness that I've previously wasn't aware of, but now I can see it loud and clear. Do you, do you want to, maybe you should be a disciple of this guy. You couldn't say anything in the world that would tick him off more than that. Nothing. Then they hurled insults at him and they said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. And the man answered, he's rising up. This is the rebuttal. Now, that is remarkable. That's a marvelous rally. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Pretty foundational Torah truth right there. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Now there's a couple things here. First of all, notice that they go right after his label and his identity again. They're on the attack. And they're gonna, uh, they're gonna tear apart the very newness of life that he's receiving from Jesus. I hate to tell you this, but it happens. 
This will happen. The arrows will come. They'll assail you from all sides when you begin to see the hurts and the wounds made new in the promise of Jesus Christ. When the works of God begin to be displayed in your life, there's going to be some additional trauma that happens. And God will use it for fertilizer if you'll let him. This is the rejection. This is the outright rejection. This is what the parents were afraid of. And here's what it meant. If you were cast out of the synagogue, first you were cast out for 30 days. And then you had an opportunity to recant. They would come to you and they would say, do you recant of whatever you did or said? And then you would say yes or no. If you said no, there was an undefined middle period of time where they would just kind of let you sit it out and wait it out, maybe stretch it out a little bit. And then they would come to you a second time and they would give you the opportunity to recant a second time. And if you still said no, I am sticking with my story, then you had an additional 30 days. It was the third section and if you still said no at the conclusion of that period of time you were utterly cast out of the Jewish community see we think oh synagogue no big deal who wants to hang out there anyway no no this was entirely rejected by the community that he was a part of you're done you are a leper to us you're dead to us you do not belong with us any longer. This is the rejection, and I just want you to hear in all of those verses from 13 to 34 that what is happening is that as he is finding his story, as he is finding Jesus, as he is becoming uh, enamored with the man he didn't even get to see, he is becoming a disciple as he's declaring what God has done for him. And, And it will attract ambulance chasers When your hurts and your wounds begin healing, people notice the change. They're curious and they're confused and you gotta give them the grace for that. You gotta let that be the case. And sometimes they're divided. Sometimes you lose loved ones. Sometimes you're abandoned because of that because there is a division that can be caused. It's the parents in the story. When your new sight and your insight starts to come out, now you remember things and you talk about things and your perspective on things are, they're, they're, they're maybe painful for those that don't wanna go to the place that is hurt and wounded in you. And then, and then eventually it can draw that criticism, that insulting that reviling that happens from the Pharisees because when your voice really kicks in and you start being able to stand on your own two feet and describe Jesus you're not giving ground and people don't like it all the time it's scary to stand up in the synagogue and say I side with the guy who was healed instead of the tradition or the status quo And then the curating of truth when that really sets in bedrock when there's concrete around your belief in Jesus. Curating that truth, that creates open hostility at times. That creates absolute, in some instances, rejection. Now look at what happens in this last section of scripture. End of the story. 35 through 38, Jesus heard that he had been thrown out And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. He's never seen him. Tell me so that I may believe in him. And Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. And then the man said, Lord, I believe and worshiped him. This is the restoration. We've just experienced the rejection, but do you know who sticks closer than a brother to you? Jesus, the son of God. Do you know who enters the blindness with this guy, heals the blindness, and then comes all the way back around after all of this story and says, I'm here. I am here for you. You belong with me. Look at the words. He asks him, he asks him, do you believe in the son of man after he found him? See, in the finding is belonging. It's, I want you. You have immense worth. I care about your story. I love you with every part of my being. I took 
time to come back around, to seek you out and to give you a new identity, a new self-worth, a new reality that will rock your world. You belong with me. I don't care what the rejection was. Right here is where you belong. And it's literally our strategy here as a church. We believe in being a community where you can belong to a loving group of people, and then you can become a follower of Jesus. See, the guy had to go through things, and he had to experience things so he could see what was actually going on. Not just physical healing of his blindness, but spiritual healing of his blindness, and recognizing what's happening, what's really going on in the social strata of the Jewish leaders. I'm seeing who this Jesus is. I'm becoming like Jesus. And now the question, you have seen him. You've watched as he has done what he will do in the mess of your miracle. He's going to do incredible things in your hurt and in your wound. And as you have faith, which is the evidence of unseen things, you begin to know who Jesus is in a different way. And you believe you belong and you become and you believe. I, I, I want to wrap up with a story, uh, another personal story from this week. Uh, and as the band comes, I, I want to leave you just with this thought. My son is, is uh, concluding his football season. He's in seventh grade, my son Garrett. And um, we were driving to school. And I think this week, because I'm speaking on this topic, I was just more attentive to the hurts and the wounds that accidentally occur to us, that we didn't have any part in creating. We didn't sin. We didn't cause it. It's just there. Something happened, and we've experienced a brokenness. We lost a job, maybe. This week alone, people I, I know have lost jobs that they were working really, careers. They put a lot of time and effort in it. That's a brokenness, that's a wound, that's a hurt. I talked to somebody last night, it's like I remember when my wrestling coach told me that the 13th banner of the state wrestling championship wasn't up on that wall because it was my fault. A woman this week, gang raped, no fault of her own brokenhearted. And so in the tenderness maybe of that, I uh, was driving with Garrett to school and I asked him this question. I said, I said, son, what do you think I think about your football season? It's been a really tough season for him. A lot of losses. I said, I want you to define for me, will you define for dad what dad's thoughts are about your football season? And uh, he hung his head. He's in the passenger side of my truck and he said that it was worthless. And uh, I'm gonna read you the rest of the story. And I took several seconds. I had to compose myself to avoid the look I felt like inside showing up on my face. You guys know it. It's the, the emoji that says, what in the world is wrong with you? But really means, I am so sorry that I didn't see that sooner. In his eyes, he was a waste. A worthless use of time to me because of a losing football season. He was hearing and believing a narrative in his mind's eye I had not caused, never even considered that he was useless, worthless, no good for anything or anybody because he didn't win, hadn't scored touchdowns, didn't get as much play time as he had hoped, wasn't able to achieve all his goals, and in the end, the season was a loss. So out of his hurt, in his mind, I saw him as a failure. And it took me a couple seconds to take stock of his revelation to me, but when I did, I went to work. I went to work. And I spoke into him. And I told him how much he was worth to me. 
and how his perceived failures in the mess of his football season, in my mind, was a perfect training ground for life. And I shared the depth of my respect and the power of my affection for him as he played in and through every single game with determination, grit, and passion. He ground for it, baby. And I told him he'd, he'd done better than I would have. He did. That he'd made me proud in every single way. And that a losing season was training for real life and real difficulty. That holding the line and pressing the point, even when there wasn't any hope of winning, was worth its weight in gold. I tried to interpret every turn of his thoughts, to speak to him of the strength of character that this season had developed in him and that its memories would continue to build in him, far from useless or worthless, that his season and his life and his effort was worth more than any price tag to me. It was perfect. You guys, I'm telling you what, what the world calls failure, God calls fertilizer. What you think about your hurts and your wounds Discard it and let it go. Just as I am a father to my son, I know that God looks at you and through the righteousness of Jesus Christ, he sees perfect. He sees worth so much. He sees value immeasurable. He is infatuated with you. He loves you with every part of his being. And I want you to turn those hurts and those wounds over to him and watch what he will do to change the whole world when he puts his work on display in your life.